I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today wrote an article on Tuesday, March 22nd, for The Washington Times entitled, the death of MAD and the urgent need to reestablish deterrence. As we've watched Putin's invasion of Ukraine unfold, the topic of defense as well as deterrence has been on my mind. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Since the 1950s, we've relied on deterrence to stop anyone from using nuclear weapons because the reaction would be so terrible. And for 70 years, it worked. Now we're moving into a world where we need to consider what defending is going to mean for nuclear or cyber attack, as well as rebuilding an effective deterrence. And I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Cliff May, founder and president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the author of the Washington Times article. The Foundation for Defense of Democracies is a Washington, D.C.-based, nonpartisan, nonprofit research institute focusing on national security and foreign policy. And I have to say, it brings together some of the smartest people thinking about national defense in the entire country. And Cliff May is their leader and has done an amazing job. Cliff, thank you for joining me. In your Washington Times article, The Death of Mad, you argue there is an urgent need to reestablish deterrence. First, would you explain for our listeners exactly what MAD means, mutually assured destruction? How did that develop and what does it mean? So MAD or mutually assured destruction was a principle during the Cold War. 
And it was determined vulnerability, actually. The idea was that if both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were unable to protect themselves from attack, that would be stabilizing rather than the reverse. Why? Because there would be no incentive for either side to go first because the other side could respond and the nuclear exchange would be devastating to both sides. So it depended on the rationality of both sides in order to succeed. And I remember studying it in graduate school. I went to the Russian Institute. I went to the School of International Affairs at Columbia. And I thought, well, this does make sense. And it kind of did. I had been an exchange student in the Soviet Union, and I had come to the conclusion eventually that the rulers of the Soviet Union were evil, but rational. And they also had fresh in their minds the memories of the horrors the Soviet Union suffered in World War II. So it seemed to be a reasonable idea that we would say, okay, a nuclear exchange will be a lose-lose proposition, and so no one will go ahead with it. But I would argue that the world situation has changed, and we haven't adapted to it since then. You know, one of the things you note in your article, President Reagan's plan for high-tech missile defense, and part of that, I think, was that Reagan had come to the conclusion that a nuclear war would really be horrifying and that he would like to abolish nuclear weapons, but in the interim, he wanted to make it extraordinarily difficult to use them. Could you outline for our listeners what the Reagan plan was for a high-tech missile defense? Yeah, Reagan was the first, I think, to say, you know, I'm not entirely comfortable with this idea of mutually assured destruction as our principle. I want to think beyond it. I want to think about the possibility of missile defense, of an umbrella, of a way to prevent our adversaries from attacking us rather than just saying they won't because afterwards we'd strike back and they won't want that. And that idea was derided as Star Wars. For one, again, those who believed in arms control and mad thought it's a bad idea because if we ever get invulnerable, then it's destabilizing. They also thought it's impossible to do. You can't hit a bullet with a bullet. But of course, there was research on missile defense, quite a bit of good research on missile defense. Some of it was actually implemented. We've worked somewhat with the Israelis on missile defense. One result is Iron Dome, which has kept Israel from having to respond much more forcefully for continuing attacks from Hamas in Gaza, for example, and Hezbollah in Lebanon, most recently just last year. But we haven't really gone nearly as far as we could. We haven't implemented the technology we have or produced more. Back during the Obama administration, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton talked about a defense umbrella. That's a little bit of an ambiguous phrase. It doesn't necessarily mean a missile umbrella, but a defense umbrella. And she said America had this and would defend its allies in Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. The problem was, and I wrote an op-ed along with Ilan Berman in the Wall Street Journal on this, that while we should have a defense umbrella, one that is not small and doesn't have holes, we don't. And at that time, Obama was cutting funding for missile defense, cutting it entirely. During the campaign, he said, I'm going to cut $10 billion from missile defense research at a time when we were devoting $9 billion to missile defense research. So my argument is that among the things we need to do is to really get back and think about missile defense because we don't have necessarily rational allies we can depend on. One can imagine North Korea's Kim Jong-un saying, you know what, if I could take out Washington, that would be worth one of my cities, would it not? One can imagine Khamenei 
who is the supreme leader of Iran, certainly saying one nuclear missile will destroy Israel forever. If I lose a city for that, isn't that a worthwhile trade? Then you have Putin, of course, and Putin, he is not the same as the materialists of the Soviet era. He takes all this very personally. We're not going to be able to establish missile defense the way we want tomorrow, but we should be working on this. And the other thing I think we need to work on is much more robust deterrence. Note that Putin thought about going into Ukraine and was not deterred by NATO, was not deterred by the U.S. He thought, no, no, I can do this. We should have a military that our adversaries recognize as so overwhelming that they can never engage us in a fair fight. Let's stick with that for a second. When Putin, about two or three weeks before the, he invaded Ukraine, went to a series of tests that were designed to test, I think, seven different nuclear weapon systems. And I thought at the time that was sort of an early warning signal that he does have nuclear weapons and he might use them. And then later, of course, he actually talked about the fact that there were circumstances where he would use them. Do you take that seriously? Yes, actually, I think we have to take it seriously. It was a threat. There was an element of what's called strategic ambiguity in that, and strategic ambiguity deters. He had it, we didn't, therefore he was deterring us more than we were deterring him. We have allowed him to develop many more tactical nukes, which means much smaller nukes, nukes that could be used on the battlefield, not Hiroshima size or beyond. I think he has something like 2,000. I think we have something like 200. He put his nuclear forces, you'll recall, on alert, which was also a way to scare us. And what he was saying, and we couldn't rule this out, we probably still can't, even though things look a little better right now, that he might, say, use a tactical nuclear weapon to demolish a Ukrainian city, carrying the threat that I can do this as well in the Balkans. I can do this as well in Poland or Moldova. I'll do this anywhere I want to. What will you do in response? I am going to reestablish the Russian Empire, because that is my job. I am meant to be a conquering czar along the lines of Peter the Great. And you can't do anything about it. I'm going to be able to deter you. You're not going to trade an American city for a Ukrainian city. And that's probably correct, but it also shows real weaknesses in terms of our strategic planning. Well, and it both means because we made a conscious decision not to have a robust tactical nuclear capability, and we actually got rid of most of our tactical nuclear weapons, I think partly because we wanted to create this gap. We have very sophisticated conventional weapons that can do basically anything a tactical nuke can do. And we wanted to make clear that to go nuclear was to cross a threshold that was horrifying. And I think at one level, Putin actually follows a more traditional Russian view, which is they're just big artillery shells. I mean, you know, you can take out Mariupol with one hit rather than have to spend three weeks bombing it. I mean, they have supposedly knocked down 92% of the buildings in Mariupol. So conventional war can be pretty horrifying in its own right. But it struck me at the time that as dangerous as he is, and I think you have to sort of see him as a genuine Russian bear that you don't particularly want to get in the cage with, when people like Iran with its religious motivation or Kim Jong-un, whose motivation is beyond our comprehension, when they have ICBMs and nuclear weapons, 
you really have to think both about how are we going to deter them and what is it we would do to defend ourselves if the deterrence broke down? And I think there's been almost no thinking about what would happen if deterrence collapsed with one of these secondary countries. I think that's right. And I just inject two more points. Putin also used a hypersonic missile it launched from an airplane. We don't have hypersonics yet. We've been slow in developing them, and we don't have defense against hypersonics yet. This should be a wake-up call to us as well. And, you know, although Putin used as an excuse for his invasion and attempt to conquer Ukraine that he was threatened by NATO, the fact of the matter is NATO has been a weakening and declining force for many years. More countries come in, but spending went up a little bit during the Trump years, but not enough. And it may change now. Germany was not contributing to the collective security in any appreciable way, and it's the richest nation in Europe. I've had arguments with German diplomats about this over the years. I think the new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, gets that Germany needs to contribute and why that's important. The West, particularly Europe, has become increasingly dependent on energy supplies from Russia. That dependence is also one of the factors that Putin considered before going into Ukraine. He thought, I can cut these guys off. I don't care. They do. In all these ways, we haven't had what I would consider to be a coherent strategy vis-a-vis Putin or really our other adversaries and potential enemies out there. And by the way, we should talk about this. Right now, Biden's diplomats are in Vienna, where they're negotiating with an Iranian delegation, but not directly. What I mean by that is that the Iranian delegation will not deign to sit down with infidel satanic Americans. So despite what's going on in Ukraine, the Russian envoy in Vienna is playing the role of, and I say this in quotes, honest broker. We have to go through him to talk to the Iranians. And the Russians are saying, well, great, we want some benefits from this deal as well. For example, we want to carve out to the sanctions being imposed due to Ukraine so we can continue to sell arms to the Islamic Republic of Iran, nuclear weapons plants for peaceful purposes only, of course. We want to carve out, and unless we get it, we won't. And what's more, and you know this very well, the deal that appears to be negotiated now would be weaker even than Obama's deal, and it would give the Iranian regime a path to nuclear weapons. Maybe a little more slowly than they would have otherwise, not clear, but it would give them that path. And then we have a regime that doesn't have relations with us, that won't talk to us, that recites the chant death to America and death to Israel every Friday night among tens of thousands of people possessing nuclear weapons. We have to think very hard about that situation if that's what the Biden administration is going to saddle us with, although I hope they won't, but I'm not confident that they won't. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. When I was in high school, my dad was serving at Fort Riley, Kansas. I remember reading a novel called Tomorrow. And it was a description of a nuclear attack on Kansas City and a very detailed sense of this is how it would happen, this is what the effect would be. And I was horrified. It's probably one of the reasons I ultimately got involved in public life is I was horrified. I don't think people realize that the threshold number of being terrified is one. We have thousands. The Russians have thousands. But North Korea, and they apparently now have between 40 and 50, North Korea with one deliverable is terrifying. The idea of Iran, I mean, if I were Israeli, I would probably go to preemptive war to block them from ever getting a nuclear weapon because one nuclear weapon in Iran would be the equivalent of the Holocaust if delivered on Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. That's right. They've said Israel is a one nuclear weapon country. We could wipe it out. And they might very well say that's worth it if all that happens in response is Israel takes out one of our cities. Because don't forget, the revolution in 1979 in Iran was not an Iranian revolution. It was very specifically said to be an Islamic revolution. And if the Jewish state is the enemy of Muslims, now plenty of Arabs and Muslims no longer feel that way about it. We just saw a meeting of Arabs and Israelis in the Negev. It's really quite a remarkable thing. But the rulers in Tehran do think that. And so they might think it's a small sacrifice to make. Everybody who dies will be a martyr. So therefore, that's a good thing. Also worth keeping in mind is that in terms of North Korea, back going back to, and you'll recall this, 1994, at that point, President Clinton had negotiations with North Korea that he said, OK, we've solved this problem diplomatically. We're going to give them various benefits, but they promised not to develop nuclear weapons. Wendy Sherman, who is now Deputy Secretary of State, she was one of the negotiators. Of course, that negotiation and that deal failed. 
It was meant to prevent North Korea, the Kim dynasty, from getting nuclear weapons. They have them. And as you point out, they have increasingly sophisticated missiles with which to deliver them. And we do not have what we need. We have some missile defense, but insufficient. Yeah, if you're weighing the survival of Seattle or Cincinnati or Washington, you wouldn't particularly want to gamble, particularly because we bought into this, I think, idiotic notion that you're going to have a land-based system which has a limited coverage. For example, the North Koreans and the Chinese and the Russians all have proven orbital weapons. Once you launch a satellite, if the satellite has a nuclear weapon in it, it is, in fact, an orbiting weapon. The current missile defense would have virtually no effect if, in fact, they had an orbital device which would not go into action until it was over the North American continent. It's a little bit like inventing an anti-aircraft system which only operates if you promise to come in from one particular direction at one time of the day. Yeah, one of the objections to Reagan's Star Wars plan was militarizing space. And that's a bad idea. We don't want to militarize space. And Ilan Berman and I made the case that, well, no, space will be militarized when a missile is fired through space aiming at a target, at, say, in the U.S. What we want to do is stop that missile from reaching its intended victims. That's not militarizing space. That's demilitarizing space. But a good missile defense system would be what they call layered or comprehensive. And part of what that means is you could detect a missile on launch and perhaps hit it right there on the pad. You could get it in flight. You could get it on various points in its trajectory of, even though it only takes seconds, you'd have various ways to do it. Now, the part of the problem with the hypersonics is it raises the possibility of missiles where you can't mathematically predict the trajectory because it can change. That is more challenging. There are people working on this. There are people thinking about this. There are people who know a lot more than I do about this, obviously. But the research and development of ways to protect Americans and American allies and American forces abroad, that is not going on in a robust manner right now. And it really should be if we recognize what's going on in the world. Matt Pottinger, I'm sure you know who he is, shares our China program. He was on the National Security Council. The way he phrases it, look, a second Cold War has been declared against us. Now, if that is true and our adversaries are mobilizing and even fighting, then we have to mobilize and fight or the outcome is unlikely to be pleasant. Easy to imagine a coalition of Iran, China, and Russia, all of whom are unified by their opposition to us and to democracy. Yes, and I think that coalition has already formed. Remember on February 4th, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin issued a 5,000-word statement in which they said their relationship has, quote, no limits. And meanwhile, the Islamic Republic of Iran is a junior partner in this relationship, but it's a partner. In recent days, they've been mobilizing Hezbollah, their military political proxy, which has brought Lebanon to its current stature as a failing state. They were mobilizing Hezbollah to go to Ukraine to fight for the Russians. I would say they're a junior partner. Other junior partners are Venezuela under Maduro, I would say Cuba, I would say Nicaragua. These are our adversaries in this Cold War. And it's different from Cold War I because in the Cold War I, the Soviet Union was the major player and China was the sidekick. Now China is the major player and Russia is the sidekick. Don't forget, Iran and Russia together have managed to prop up the Assad dictatorship in Syria at the cost of over 500,000 lives. 
And the so-called international community has sort of said, oh, that's too bad, but oh, what are you going to do? Right. If you go back to what Obama said, I think in 2013, Assad has now lived as the leader nine years longer than Obama predicted because we weren't prepared to do what it would have taken to have knocked him out. So you also have this, I think, danger that it's very hard for the West to take seriously the scale of the threat. And I want to have you take just a minute and talk about the point you were making in your article. How do you think we need to rebuild the deterrence side? And what investments do we need to make to maximize our ability to deter anyone from taking us on? Well, at the very least, if we recognize that there's a new Cold War, we need to get back to what we were doing in the Cold War. In the Cold War, we were spending probably double what we're spending now as a percentage of GDP on defense. Our Navy is not what it should be when you consider what Beijing is doing in terms of building up its sea power, taking over Solomon Islands and building up reefs into military fortresses in the South China Sea, which is a hugely important international trade and shipping lane. We need to upgrade and renew our nuclear forces. Again, we need to work on missile defense. There's just a huge number of things we need to do. If we acknowledge that this is a second Cold War and a more challenging one because Xi Jinping has a richer regime than the Soviet Union ever was. And I think he's frankly a shrewder and more formidable player than any of the Soviet leaders ever were. And then you have Russia behind him with a lot of nuclear weapons, a lot of ambitions in terms of Eastern Europe and probably Central Asia as well. So military thinkers need to get together on this and be thinking about it. But you need a president who says, yes, this is a priority. And that's going to mean a lot of things. America needs to be an energy superpower again. We were just two or three years ago. We can be. But we can't be if we believe that the answer to our fears of climate change is to get everybody in America to drive a Tesla. That's probably not going to do the trick. China is not buying in on climate change despite the persuasiveness of John Kerry as a climate change envoy. It's upgrading its production of coal, among other things, which is among the worst things it could do. You want to think of climate change as a challenge, fine, but not as an emergency that eclipses all other threats that we face. And so we need to drill and we need to frack and we need to do LNG and we need to export and we need to be energy secure, if not energy independent. We need to work with Canada we need to help our European allies become more energy secure and not depend on Russia. A lot of things we need to do if we understand that the world has changed and we face serious threats now. We don't have a world in which there's an international community that all agrees on everything. By the way, the other thing we need to look at hard is the United Nations, which has been increasingly subverted, not least by China. The UN Human Rights Council is a club for human rights abusers. The World Health Organization answers to Beijing. The World Trade Organization not doing a good job. And even the IMF, where we have really a controlling interest we don't use, in the midst of this, had been giving money to Putin's Russia, which it shouldn't be at a time like this. And even right now, for all the sanctions, Putin has been getting about a billion dollars a day through energy sales. That money, at the very least, should be going into escrow and not into his pocket.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. If I can build on the deterrence issue... Back in 2000, the Hart-Rudman Commission, which was the largest three-year comprehensive look since 1947, came back and they said that the greatest threat to the United States was a weapon of mass destruction going off in an American city, probably by a terrorist group. They went on to say that should prevention and deterrence fail, the United States must have the means of active defense against both mortal danger and blackmail. And it went on to advocate that U.S. military, law enforcement, intelligence, economic, financial, and diplomatic means have to be effectively integrated for this purpose. Coming out of that, we created the Department of Homeland Security, which unfortunately was a total disaster. The original, and I know this because Clinton and I created the Hart-Rudman Commission, and he generously asked me to serve on it after I stepped down as speaker, and I spent three years working on this. And our idea of a homeland defense department was that it would be capable and focused on actually defending the country from attack. So, for example, if you had a nuclear weapon go off or if you had a weapon of mass disruption like a cyber attack that took down all of the ATMs in the country, you'd have a department that was focused almost like a gigantic, sophisticated civil defense system. To the best of my knowledge, we today have nothing capable of responding on that scale. And as a result, we are in real danger, I think. If deterrence fails and we get either a weapon of mass disruption, which is very likely, or a weapon of mass destruction, which is very possible, 
but not quite as likely. We're totally unprepared to shift over to defending the quality of our life or to defending our freedom or to defending people's lives. So part of the reason I want to chat with you today is I think we both have to rebuild our deterrence so that it's robust and totally believable. And we have to take seriously, whether it's electromagnetic pulse attack or cyber attack or nuclear attack, how we would defend America against an aggressive, active effort to undermine and destroy us. Now, I'd be curious to get your reaction to this idea of reasserting defense as a major component of how we think about national security. Well, I think it's absolutely essential. And proper deterrence means peace through strength, that Reagan phrase, is that your enemies look at you and say it would be too dangerous to provoke or challenge the United States. They could do us such damage rather than to think, you know, we might be able to take them. And by the way, you mentioned cyber, and I neglected to mention that, but it's usually important. We have cyber capabilities, but what we want is not what we've had, where China, for example, for years has been stealing billions and billions of dollars of intellectual property, including defense intellectual property that is very valuable to us. We should be able to prevent that, but also let Russia know that if you do this, we can do damage to you that you cannot recover from. And again, it will not be a fair fight. We have cyber abilities that you do not have and you will not have. People don't like this, but there's a cyber arms race, and there's an arms race in other ways. You mentioned hypersonic missiles. Yeah, if there is an arms race, we have to not just be winning it. We have to be more than a nose ahead of the next horse. We have to be lengths ahead. That's ambitious, but it's doable. And it's more dangerous not to do it than to do it. If you're way out in front, they know they can't defeat you. If they think, you know what, we probably can. They have better capabilities, but we have the will. Then we are in a really dangerous situation. Again, that's sort of what Putin thought here. Okay, I can't really take on NATO, but I don't think NATO has the will to take on me. In 2008, I sliced off two provinces of neighboring Georgia. No one did anything. In 2014, I took Crimea, and I began to occupy the eastern region, the Donbass region of Ukraine. Nothing really bad happened to me as a result. I can do this again and again and again until I do what I want to do and have the legacy I want, which is that I restored the Russian Empire and perhaps expanded it. That's my mission. And again, he's a guy, I understand this, he has more money than he can ever spend with a billion-dollar palace on the Black Sea. He has a girlfriend half his age. He obeys no laws whatsoever. He can kill people when he wants to, and that's okay. So what does he want to do? He wants to go down in history as Vladimir the Great, a conqueror. And we in America and the West don't understand who would want to be a conqueror. But you know as a historian that for countless centuries, that was the grand ambition, to conquer. That's what people wanted because we don't want that. And we only say, oh, we're number one at sports games. We've sublimated that drive. We think everybody else has, but everybody else hasn't. That's right. And there's a long Russian tradition. He's precisely in the tradition of Peter the Great or Catherine or going a lot further back, Ivan the Terrible, which meant Ivan the Terrible to his enemies, although it is true that he killed his son at a moment of irritation. Wonderful painting by V.I. Arepin, as you know. I have it. My wife won't let me put it up anywhere where people can see in the house. <laughs> the Rapin painting shows 
Ivan the Terrible, he has hit his son over the head with a big cane. The cane is on the floor. He's hit him so hard that he's dying. He now realizes what he has done. He is mortified. He's holding his son in his arms. The cane's on the floor. There's a puddle of blood. Blood is dripping. And he realizes, this is my only heir. And I've just killed him in a fit of temper. And it's just an absolutely amazing painting. I think it's at the Tretyakov Gallery. People should Google it and look at it because it's astounding. And I think you sort of captured part of the Russian tradition just in that one painting. The thing that strikes me, it's very hard for Americans, one, to realize how dangerous the world is and always has been, how fortunate we've been to have been a country with two oceans and ability to grow, although our civil war was horrible. But in addition, you made a point I really want to reemphasize that is something I have said for my entire career starting in 1979. I've been interacting with the American military on a routine basis since then. And I always emphasize, we're not in the business of fair fights. What we want to have is overwhelming capacity to win at minimum cost to ourselves and to win as rapidly as possible and as decisively as possible. And I think that we have to come to grips with how different the world is, how huge a challenge China is, how dangerous a challenge Russia is, but also that in both Iran and North Korea, you have regimes we don't understand and regimes who don't operate by our standard or our timetable. And we are not today prepared to cope with the scale of threat that they represent. And I think that's why we both have to rebuild our deterrence and we have to figure out a brand new and much deeper and more sophisticated defense system that would enable us to take a punch, minimize casualties to the country, and be able to come roaring back in a very aggressive way. I don't see any way we can avoid that and survive as a country. I think that's absolutely right. And the bumper sticker for what you just described is peace through strength. I don't think that the Biden administration has come to that conclusion at this point. I'll just mention this. I've been writing about this, and I'd be helpful to hear your thoughts. Biden, when he talked to the Business Roundtable last week, he talked about a new world order, and people were very puzzled by what that meant. Now, one new world order was after World War II, where we set up the UN and we tried to establish international laws and institutions and human rights and all of that. It didn't succeed marvelously well, but then you had the collapse of the Soviet Union and President George H.W. Bush talked again about a new world order because he thought with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the international community would be more on the same page and we would be able to have diplomatic solutions. I think what's very clear now is that, this gets back to what we were saying, that the rulers of China, Russia, and Iran all see that they want to establish a new world order, one in which the U.S. role would be very much diminished. It would not be what we've called for years, somewhat unwieldy phrase, the liberal, rules-based, American-led international order. They would make the rules. It would be distinctly illiberal. They would say, we are what democracy means, not what the United States, that chaotic place, that decadent place, that declining place, what they represent. They are trying to establish a new world order. Now, again, I don't know exactly what Biden had in mind, and I'm not sure he necessarily does. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories <laughs> regarding that. But what we have to do is decide what we want. There will be an order or there will be chaos. We have to decide what we want and what we're willing to do to achieve it. And I think that should be the challenge for President Biden. He has three years. It certainly has to be the challenge for the next president, because without that, there will be decline between now and then. Well, and I think that if there is a 
new Republican Congress, as seems likely, they need to really make having hearings that are serious, intellectually tough, and really exploring this. I mean, you could imagine that the scale of the vote in the UN was actually pretty startling, and that the degree to which large parts of the world responded negatively to Putin's invasion probably surprised Xi Jinping. But translating general positive applause into effective military power and being capable in the much harder world of reality to move beyond that, I think, is a very, very tall challenge. And again, you live in an era where, you know, if either Kim Jong-un or Khomeini decided to launch one missile with one nuclear warhead, that eliminates any United Nations vote as utterly, totally irrelevant. And of course, it was the United Nations vote in the General Assembly. The Security Council couldn't do that because Russia has a veto. China has a veto. So the Security Council was totally impotent in this regard. And while the resolution made by the General Assembly was strong, it was not nearly as vehement as, say, statements from the General Assembly against Israel for daring to defend itself from Hamas rockets. I see huge problems at the United Nations as a center of any international community. Again, I don't think there really is an international community. The idea that China and Costa Rica, Canada, and Belgium are all members of the same community, that can hardly be taken seriously. What there should be is a community of nations that are free or aspire to be free, and they should recognize who opposes those goals and the expansion of freedom. And that gets you back into the mode of a sort of Cold War, doesn't it? But I think it's necessary. Well, I think that the scale of rethinking and the scale of resetting how we approach this is truly historic and may actually be as historic as the effort that had to go underway between 1945 and 1950 in coming to grips with how different the world was. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me. I think this is a really important and timely topic, and we're going to connect your article and also the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy on our show page. And you do amazing work. The team you've assembled is one of the smartest national security teams that I know of. And it's a great honor to have you be with us. It's my honor to be with you, a longtime friend and admirer. So thanks so much. Thank you to my guest, Cliff May. You can read his article, The Death of Mad and the Urgent Need to Reestablish Deterrence, on our show page at newtsworld.com, as well as a connection to the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip hop beats, and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.